Hello and welcome to the Urban Talk podcast, where we talk all things urban, demystify development, and break down the barriers between the development sector and local communities. I'm your host, Belinda Barnett. Joining me today is Carla Castellanos, Director of Urban Design at Audex Urban, a company that specialises in urban design and design excellence advice. Welcome, Carla, to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Today with Carla, um, we will be discussing housing density. And I just thought it would be good to set a little bit of the vaccine, I guess, for the discussion that we're going to be having. I think it's important to understand that the Albanese government has just released their National Housing Accord, and that set an aspirational target of one million new well-located homes to be delivered over the next five years from mid-2024 across Australia. This includes 10,000 new affordable homes that will be supported by the Commonwealth and a further 10,000 homes that will be supported by the states. And under the accord, New South Wales has to to deliver 75,000 new homes annually over the next five years, which is twice as many as what the state is usually delivering. So to realise these types of targets, we need to be building at density. And as a nation, we've got to come together to look at how best to absorb this new stock into our cities and into our regions. And for many communities, there's no doubt that it's going to be a very sensitive topic and it's going to be divisive. So to discuss the issue of density, I could think of no better guest than my dear colleague, Carla, because we've done many projects together and you have a great ability to talk about context and fit with new projects and um, certainly through your work in both the private and public sectors and your involvement in numerous uh, design excellence panels, I think you're currently on the panels for Burwood, Hornsby and Wollongong. You are dealing with these types of issues daily. You're an urban designer and an architect and through your stellar career you have lived and studied in cities all over the world and that's really given you quite a unique appreciation of housing density. So I thought it would be great for you to start our discussion by just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your experience because your journey is really quite a wonderful one. Thank you, Belinda. And it's certainly um, a pleasure to be here. I cannot think of um, a more deserving host for this podcast. And I took the chance at the first invitation because uh, not only I enjoy very much working with you, I admire your professional career and the contribution that you make to our local community. Thank you, Carla. And uh, well, thank you very much. Yes, um, I, I have a background in architecture. I studied architecture, but I really define myself as an urban designer because I found in urban design um, that ex- the scale that brings architecture into a more uh, expansive uh, scale and you can make a, a, a better contribution when you're not only considering the interface of architecture to the internal design. But when you take that design from the interface with the public domain to the rest of the community. So I really found my niche in urban design and that's where I operate. And with regards to um, the background that, that I bring, I started my career in United States where I studied under uh, Duane Plata Seiberg at the University of Miami. And they were really the pioneers of what is known as uh, the new urbanism. And that told us, let's go back and look at some of the traditional design and what that can, what lessons that can give us in how we see 
urbanis, urbanism today and densities and neighborhoods and the quality of the public domain. So I think I was uh, given a very good start in my early career. And then I went and expanded that uh, into a proper um, diploma in urban design in the UK. Um, and that was also just being there really taught me a great deal about what European cities are like. And funny enough, uh, our new um, premier is now looking at European cities. That uh, example or that precedent that could be implemented uh, here in Australia. Later in life, I did have the chance to live and work in very populous cities. And I spent some time in India and some time in Singapore and Belinda, that's a different scale of development and density. So yes, I, I've I've had uh, I, I I feel very lucky about my training, but also about the places where I've lived and worked, and that hopefully gives me some understanding on how I I wish to operate and what contribution I can make here in Australia, especially in Sydney. Yeah, that's fantastic, and and I I really do think that your background. It just brings so much to, I guess, the work that you that you are doing, and I think it sort of leads us into, I guess, the start of our discussion about density and what density means to different people. It's no secret that we're in the midst of a housing supply crisis. You know, as I said at the outset, the housing um, accord target of one million homes over five years reinforces the seriousness of the crisis and and what the sector, the development sector, has to deal with. The only way that we can deal with it is actually to start increasing housing densities in our cities. However, in a lot of the discussion that takes place about density, there seems to be a lack of consistency in what it means. And we, we traditionally talk about density as low, medium, high density. And you know, it comes to mind a community consultation that I ran quite a few years ago now, but it was in St Leonard's. And I put out a, a, a flyer to the local community that talked about a new project being a medium density project. It was five to six storeys in height, the project. Or, you know, it was a, a multi-unit apartment complex. And I remember the community taking me to task once they received this flyer saying, how dare you, you know, try and pull the wool over our, our eyes talking about this as being a medium density housing project. This is a high density project. And I was actually quite taken back by that because I'd always, I guess, you know, had thought about medium density as being around five to six stories. And it made me sit up and listen. And, and I think it's a really good starting point for our discussion. And, and the question I really want to ask you is, you know, how, how should we be defining these different levels of density, low, medium and high density? I think your experience, it's quite telling about the perceptions about density. And I think it's a very... Uh, nebulous uh, place because your experience and mine um, having lived in many places in the world will immediately gravitate towards the point that a building that is five to six stories it's medium density when you consider the heights of buildings in cities like New York Shanghai and then compared to the other end of the spectrum which is that single residential dwellings of one in two levels plus an attic, that is considered by any definition as low density. So what is medium density? If you think about it, your, your flyer put forward a very logical proposition. Mm. Buildings that are right in the middle, 
could be called medium density. However, very interesting. There's always a however. <laughs> however, that's right. Um, however, for according to the New South Wales uh, legislation, and I'm being guided by several strategic documents, when you look at the images of what is the great big missing middle, it's not buildings of five to six uh, stories. It is actually multi-dwelling development that it is in fact very or closer to the scale of a single residential dwelling where you might have multi-dwelling development that is attached living units that are of two stories plus an attic. So what is that area or what is that density or how is five to six story buildings uh, known in the New South Wales legislation? that it's all high density. In fact, I'm just going to quote for our audience um, the definition of a residential flat building is any building or any structure that has more than four dwellings and has more than two stories. So pretty much uh, what we used to think in Australia as the walk-ups, right? Mm -hmm. Those will fall today, as long as they have more than four dwellings, into the category of high density. So yes, I, coming from overseas and seeing your flyer for the first time, I would have agreed with you. This is going to be a medium density residential development. But for the Australian educated public that is aware of the definitions within our strategic documents, that is a high density development. So I guess that leads me to my next question. How should we be presenting discussions about density to local communities? Are a floor space ratio and building height controls the right way to discuss density? Or is it more suitable to use persons per hectare? Or is there another way we should be talking about density? That's a great question. And I think it's a question that bedevils um, all the leaders you know, of our industry, all the people at the helm of the strategic and, and planning departments, because even for a professional who is trained in understanding density in terms of height and FSR, which is the acronym that stands for um, you know, floor space ratio, um, you wouldn't be able to automatically visualize in your mind what the envelope or massing will look like if you have in front of you a density control and a height control. So a lot of people really relate better to number of stories and some DCP controls or development control plans in our localities have a story controls, but generally they are superseded by the local environment plan, which is the one that outlines how high and how much floor space ratio you can have on every site. So it still is a measure that is widely used, but it doesn't tell you right by looking at those two figures, what is the bill form? How, how tall, how large, how bulky it is, it really doesn't. And then you take another layer to that, which is that the residential flat building tells us that whatever comes out of those two figures is really only an envelope. And you have to assume that 75% of that is the building and 25% of that is really just the space around it, uh, if I can put it that way. Going back to your question, how should, what would be the best method to look at it? Well, 
one thing that is used in other um, in other countries uh, and even in in other areas of Australia and even within some councils here in uh, New South Wales is population per hectare. But again, that's another figure that unless you have an image in front of you doesn't mean anything or you really don't know what we're talking about. But I'm going to give you perhaps um, a little image so for our listeners to understand what um, hectare, uh, population per hectare looks like. And I'm going to be um, courageous and ask my dear host a question. Oh dear. <laughs> That's a bit scary. <laughs> After I put to you some figures, of course, I wouldn't just send you off the cliff. The population per square kilometer of New York is approximately 11,000 persons per square kilometer. And Shanghai is actually 4,000 individuals per square kilometer. So here's the question for our dear host. What do you think is the number of individuals per square kilometer in Paddington or Surrey Hills? I have no idea whatsoever. Well, this illustrates my point that even if um, you know the neighborhood very well, it is really hard to pinpoint what density it has. But it would probably bring this into a, a more visual picture if I were to say that Paddington or Surrey Hill are right in the middle between the densities of New York and Shanghai with approximately 8,000 inhabitants per square kilometer. Imagine, and you think, well, it's 8,000 compared to 11,000 in New York. And what will that be the case? And that's because when you have dwellings that are side by side and take up what is the available land, you are really creating a really high level of density without having to increase the height. And this is where perhaps... Uh, the next points that we might discuss in our podcast allude to that being an example. Yeah, I, th I think it's, you know, one of the hurdles, I guess, due to this lack of consistency in understanding what density looks like is that, you know, from governments or from councils, oh, we're going to have to look at increasing density. And that automatically generates fear. Everybody does have this different understanding of what high or medium density is. Um, but, you know, in some ways, what you're, what you're saying is that many, many Australians have also travelled quite widely and, you know, they consider the cities that they consider to be beautiful and livable um, despite there being a higher density. You know, there are lots of people that love New York, you know, lots of people that love Paris and Barcelona. Um, and as you touched on at the outset, you know, the MINS government, you know, basically is now looking at talking about density. Um, I think they're calling it creating a French revolution for Sydney. You know, the New South Wales target, I guess, under the accord is 75,000 dwellings a year. The Premier is saying that there could be advantage in taking inspiration from Paris and what occurred there during the Hussman era. And I think to achieve that 75,000 dwelling target per year for New South Wales, we need to be looking at 10, 
to 20,000 new dwellings being completed each year in complexes of up to six storeys. I think that's basically what the targets are coming out with. So given Australians love to travel and and, and I guess given that we do have international cities that, that we love, is that an opportunity, you know, that we should be using to get the general public more on board with this idea of population growth and density, making these comparisons between Sydney and international cities? Interesting question and just a word of caution uh, to some uh, individuals in our leadership that will use a French Revolution and what happened uh, to during the era of Houseman in New York because we have to understand that what they are inviting us to do or to consider is a great change generator, right? Um, Hausman, uh, Baron Hausman, as we know, did not achieve uh, the outcomes that he did in 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 Paris without destroying hectares and hectares of medieval fabric in the city of Paris. Uh, Mussolini did the same thing by destroying, um, again, real beautiful tracts of uh, medieval fabric in Rome to create La Via de la Conciliazione. So we, we are being invited to consider a great change generator to actually tackle our housing crisis and our housing affordability. And while I agree that we need to embrace change to create a really responsive and comprehensive solution to this problem, because it is a crisis, we also need to be mindful of not trying to import foreign precedents. I think that Australian, Australians are quite resilient and quite capable of creating a homemade solution suitable for all of us because, uh, yes, we are going to see a transformation, but this transformation doesn't have to be as radical as, you know, as life-unaltering as it was for Parisians in the day of Hausmann, nor as it was for those residents living under fascist regime in Italy where decisions were handed down and had to be accepted. So, and I do, and the reason why I, I'm quite connect with you is because you, as a great communicator and a promoter of consultation, will know that in situations like that, um, community consultation perhaps goes by the sideways. And here in Australia, we have a very democratic country where consultation has to be at the heart of every decision taken, especially when it's going to affect the community at large. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's written into our Environmental Planning and Assessment Act. You know, it's one of the objects to actually increase community participation in planning process. So, yeah, it, it, it is... I, I agree with you entirely. You know, for us to be able to have robust policy, we need to have the community on board in the formulation of a solution. Which now is most probably like quite a good segue into what I'd like to discuss next, which is looking at where we're going in terms of housing policy to about to achieve these the housing accord targets. And there's certainly been a flurry of activity and discussion about how the government is going to go about realising the targets. For me, much of the policy formulation seems to be occurring behind closed doors without consultation with communities. Do you think that this is the right approach? To a little bit, you've answered this question in your in your previous answer, but yeah, I'd like to just sort of talk to, talk a bit about it a little bit more because I think the projects that we've worked on together, I'm a great believer in education. You know, not everybody comes to any topic with the same understanding of the topic. You know, what, what we're asking communities, um, I mean, all of us to actually take on board 
and to achieve these housing targets. We all need to be on the same page. We, we need robust policies that have bipartisan support that are going to withstand political terms because they're going to take a long time to actually implement. So how do, what do you think is the right approach for involving communities in policy creation? I'm being humbled by uh, the question because uh, it's being asked by a person who is absolutely at the top of uh, the consultation uh, sphere and you know, knows the process very well and you have um, really established yourself as uh, one of those great uh, consultation experts and your firm does that work on a daily basis. So, so thank you uh, for the question. And the answer to me, uh, is it has two parts, right? Uh, one is in every great policy, you need time for those at the leadership uh, table to define the problem, understand the resources that are available to tackle that problem, and to create or brainstorm solutions. And that needs to be done in a, in a confined space that allows people to really speak openly about what those issues are, what the resources are, and what the potential solutions could be before it hits the public arena. Mm-hmm. So I, I do believe that certain, up to a certain point, uh, politicians, leaders, and decision makers need that space to be able to trash out all these ideas and workshop all the potential solutions. But it is the issue of how you're going to implement that that requires consultation and it requires community input because without it being welcome or received or well understood by the community, no good plan or well-formulated plan is going to actually be welcome and actually implemented by the community. So one thing is, yes, um, plans need to be devised by those with the knowledge, the skill and the experience, but that has to, at some point, leave the table, be introduced to the community for their input, and then once that is all agreed and everybody has an understanding of it, then we need the leadership back to make sure that it is implemented. Because perhaps one of my greatest criticisms of the leaders in our community or in our greater New South Wales is the revolving door of leadership that has started a great number of plans, has tried to tackle a great number of issues and run very quickly and vigorously to only be replaced within a very short period of time. And all of those plans and all of those ideas are simply put into a shelf and never see the light of day. And we then are hit with the next person coming and we start the sequence all over again. So yes, we do need to create plans, concrete plans in a close forum at first, expose them to the community, but once they are introduced to the problem and the potential solutions, that's where I think we need the biggest and strongest leadership to make sure that they are seen through. Exactly. It's that bipartisan support that they stay in place. Because I think every time we get the next, you know, the change in government, the next iteration of plan, then for communities, that's just that lack of certainty, that erosion of trust. You know, it takes everybody sort of 
back to square one again. And, they, and people are thinking, oh, my God, what's going to come next? And also, actually, I, I may add that those who are tasked with the implementation are usually the local government areas. And I'm going to speak on their behalf um, and take the liberty to do so, although I'm no longer in public service, to say that these uh, councils in local government areas are experiencing a great deal of fatigue in terms of the new information that comes to their door for action, immediate action, on a monthly basis. And we all know that they are already quite um, strapped in terms of resources. So not only they have to fulfill their usual obligations um, to service the local community, but they also have to respond and sometimes very quickly to those many plans that are put forward on a very regular basis, and simply councils don't have the resources to do so. That's an excellent point. You know, I guess when we're talking about apartment design, you know, there's a couple of existing policies that have been in place now for a while. There is a SEP 65 and the Residential Apartment Guide, which have substantially been relied upon. From your day-to-day working environment and working knowledge, are these provisions working? And Will they also need to be changed to reach these housing accord targets? How do you see everything sort of merging together? Okay, that's a great question. And my experience stems mainly from using the SEP 65 and the design guideline that comes with it, which is the praxis for that SEP, and that is the apartment design guide. And in my opinion, as an expert for the Uh, Land and Environment Court of New South Wales is an instrument that is widely used, widely recognised and upheld by the courts of New South Wales, the Land and Environment Court. So in my view, if we didn't have these guidelines, um, we would be looking at far worse quality of development across New South Wales. And so I truly believe that The guideline is working, the guideline provides uh, some guidance, but the unfortunate thing is that it's being taken as the minimum common denominator. So the intent was perhaps to elevate the quality of design, but in reality it's being used as the minimum quantitative or qualitative resource or guides or rates that we need to apply. So yes, um, but I still believe that even though it's taking as a minimum or low common denominator in terms of the aspects of design that should be applied, we would be looking at far worse outcomes if we didn't have that instrument or that guideline to, to guide us. Now, perhaps there is a lot more speculation with regards to the affordable housing SEP because uh, changes have been earmarked to come and we've been told as uh, soon as the later part of this year, we'll see something more concrete about it. And whilst I believe that so far a great number of developments have benefited from these affordable housing guidelines, a lot more work is needed. And also in particular, and we go back to your point before, in terms of educating or actually introducing uh, this notion to the community because unfortunately affordable housing still carries some stigma within the community about 
who is going to actually be the end user of affordable housing. And any concentration of it in one particular place uh, really raises a lot of concerns from the surrounding community. So I will use a famous phrase that I've learned from a, an old British sitcom called Yes, Prime Minister, in that anyone who wishes to introduce a really uh, strong, affordable housing policy in, in, in New South Wales or a uh, local uh, how affordable housing scheme in a particular uh, council will be seen as being courageous because it is the ultimate vote loser, meaning local communities really still fear the imposition of affordable housing right in their doorstep. And therefore, some councils perhaps have not acted as quickly as they can to implement these policies. But also, I think that then there is a level of responsibility at the state level to really begin to introduce uh, the benefits of affordable housing to the community and make the community understand better. How does that really translate into housing affordability? I think that there's a nexus that has not been made clear and therefore communities still believe that anyone deserves an affordable housing unit or that is going to reside in one is perhaps a person who by different reasons may not be able to afford a proper home or that because or because of personal circumstances, is not able really to um, live in a different type of accommodation. And there's a little stigma attached to that. So I think that's still one issue that no policy as written or as introduced lately has really tackled. And I think that is part of the great work that still needs to be done. And maybe it also goes back to, you know, the, the previous point when you were talking about SEP 65 in the residential apartment guide you know if people know that the projects that are being built that have the affordable housing are still going to be built to a quality a minimum quality i think that would also be beneficial up to now we know that one way in which uh, development has been made more affordable is to preclude the apartment design guide uh, from applying just a quick example for our audience the moment that the ADG or the Apartment Design Guide applies means that you have to meet certain targets with regards to cross-ventilation, with regards to solar access, with regards to private open space, and so on and so forth. And the affordable housing SEP clearly states that you are not to assess these developments under the SEP 65 or the Apartment Design Guide in an effort to make that type of development more affordable. But yes, so we need to create that notion that affordability doesn't mean lower quality development and that there has to be a way of ensuring that certain minimum quality requirements are met without increasing cost for the end user. Um, one of the other, I guess, policy areas that the government's looking at is really proposing um, special priority rezoning in areas around transportation hubs, you know, basically saying that they're being suitable for, for high density. There's obviously merit in increasing density where the, in areas that are already serviced by transport infrastructure. One of the fears with this reform may be that local councils and by extension the communities may be completely circumvented um, you've had experience, um, and we sit on the design panels for Burwood and for Hornsby. Both of those councils have released their master plans for their 
for their town centres, which have, have increased density. I'd be interested to know, I guess, what your thoughts are about this policy initiative. Yes, yeah, so I think that um, out of the recent initiatives that have been put forward, this one actually makes more sense to me for various reasons. One is we have introduced that notion of transit-oriented development already for some time. People are aware that if you have a great investment by the state government in terms of a metro station or an upgraded railway station or light rail, that that is an investment that comes along with a commitment by the community to accept density around that because it is the logical place where it can occur. And so uh, one of the changes that are being promoted as part of these new initiatives is to perhaps increase that perimeter around those centers which are already almost all established. We know that there's been a great investment in terms of metro, new metro stations uh, for some time. And this is no news for local councils. They know and they are, in my opinion, most of them been waiting eagerly for these stations to occur. Hence why some have taken the initiative to create entire master plans around these uh, new metro stations because it truly is an opportunity and it truly is a change generator. And when you uh, understand that councils um, in their LGA or entire sectors of their LGA will be within 10, five-minute travel or commute to, you know, either Sydney or the city of Parramatta. These are opportunities that councils, I think, have welcomed. I'd like to move now to talk about, I guess, another area of um, policy initiative that's been put on the table by the state government, and that's um, around pattern books. The Daily Telegraph has reported that across New South Wales, 50,000 existing small apartment complexes that were built before 2000 um, have been identified for rebuilding at a higher density. To achieve this scale of redevelopment, the capacity of the construction sector is going to need to be boosted. And to achieve this, the government is suggesting pattern books. And I guess, as I understand it, the pattern books will have compliant apartment block layouts that a builder can click and drag onto a potential development site. Using a predetermined pattern book would also then offer an expedited um, approval process. Have you had experience with pattern books And what would this idea actually look like in practice? Yes, so the answer to your question is yes, I've had experience uh, in the traditional sense of utilising pattern books. So um, part of uh, my training, early training in my career in the United States was in fact um, doing an internship at uh, Urban Design Associates in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And one of the things that they specialized was in the creation of pattern books. And this meant you will have a series of uh, controls that will provide guidance as to proportions, elements of the design, colors, materials, and in essence, it meant to be a guide, not a prescriptive tool where you drag something onto a page and that will create the same outcome for every person who uses it. And I think that is the difference here, that 
the state government is suggesting that if you use these patterns, um, and, and I do not know, we do not know what the praxis is going to be yet. We do not know how it's going to be implemented, in what areas, or who is really able to get access to this type of tool. But the this is the difference that I, I fear is being uh, put forward as a more prescriptive measure. So one uh, type of solution fits all areas of Sydney. And that's, I think, the part that we still need more detail to be able to fully comprehend how pattern books could be the solution for our affordability and housing crisis. Because my question as an urban designer who sits in a lot of panels and, and tries to assess development as it's put forward, one of the things that we look forward to is innovation, quality, something that responds to the context in which this development is going to sit. So if all of a sudden we have a pattern book that dictates the same outcome for every area of Sydney or every LGA, then where do we go in terms of character, in terms of personalization, in, st- in terms of the streetscape amenity that every street should have its own personality? So yes, uh, a lot of questions are, are being raised, but I think as we now go back to the beginning of this podcast is trying to create in the mind of the locals or in the mind of in the mind of the community members what is this going to look like i think it's a way of trying to simplify or trying to suggest oh we're going to have more areas like paddington like surrey hills right and that way we take away the fear of a lot more density coming to my backyard or to the site right across my door because it's going to look like paddington is the pattern book from Surrey Hills that we're going to get across the street. So therefore, it could be okay, even though it's going to have three, four, five times the amount of persons living on the same site as perhaps today we have a single residential dwelling. So I think the message is, let's welcome density. It's not going to be tall. It's not going to be bulky. It's going to be fine-grained. It's going to be relatable to certain local areas that we already know and love. I think that's what this premier is doing. But I have questions in terms of when it's implemented, are we going to have that variety of character? Are we going to end up with dwellings that are of high quality internal amenity? And is it going to be okay if we replicate that same pattern everywhere? You know, these are normal questions that when we attend architecture school or when we do an urban design course, we are told you have to leave room for character, response to surrounding context, for personalization. And if that is also part of that formula of the pattern book, let's explore it. Let's welcome it. Let's see what it says. Let's see what um, ideas are being put forward before we trash it down. But yes, let's start asking the right questions because we do need to be Part of that journey, and as those who are in this industry, if we are going to embrace this, because it might be just like the apartment design guide that stays with us for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And so we need to understand um, upfront whether the answers that book provides is for the right questions. 
Yeah, and I think I think that's that's right, Carla. I think it is a an exciting time. I think yeah, I think you're right. We've got to maintain an optimism about the new policies that are being formulated. Um, it is a huge a huge task to take on board to look at increasing density at the level that we're talking about and to look at the provision of, I guess, of, of housing supply that has to be delivered over the next five years. In New South Wales alone, you know, that's, that figure of 75,000 new homes is, is a huge target that the industry has to meet. So, yes, look, I, 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 it's been fantastic talking with you. I'd love to have you back um, once we have the detail um, behind these policies. I think we're, as a, you know, as, as a sector, we are all eager to, to see the detail and to see what it, what it means, no matter what role we, we play in, in development. I mean, I'm certainly keen to know what it's going to mean in terms of consultation, and I, I certainly hope that it doesn't see consultation eroded or diluted from processes. So fingers crossed on that scale, that's for me. What, what, what would you, what's your main sort of hope for, with these new policies? I, I have a hope. I, I mean, my, my, I wake up every day with the hope that any contribution is going to deliver a better community, that even the smallest of projects can make a difference. And so my hope is that if policies are coming in the name of solving our housing crisis, our, our affordability crisis, that we need to give room for those policies to be presented. And I, I want to invite you know, your audience to contemplate this thought that occurred to me once watching a very wonderful documentary on the history of Australia and the history of our Harbour Bridge. And that was that the Harbour Bridge was, it was a vision created when Australia had approximately only 6 million inhabitants. And imagine the foresight of those leaders at that time to create a piece of infrastructure that not only has captured the hearts of Australians, but of the world, and serve us well. And it was an investment when, you know, we only had 6 million inhabitants. And if you had asked the local communities then, well, imagine that at the turn of not even 100 years, the, the population of Australia is going to be approximately 23 to 25 million inhabitants. I think it would have been overwhelming for any member of our local community to think, what is going to happen to Australia? What is going to happen to Sydney? What is going to happen to North Sydney, you know, in, that, in, in, in those days? But as a newcomer to Australia, as a recent arrival, and yes, this is home now, I can say that Australia is, having had the, the opportunity to compare to so many other countries, it's a fantastic place to live. So this place has not lost its essence. It has not lost its values, despite greater double or triple the population that has occurred since the days of the creation or vision for the Harbour Bridge. So I do want to invite the community to think, what will, what will Australia be if we had twice the population and the population closer to those uh, of any country in Europe, will Australia lose its place or or soul or or character? I think the answer is is not easy to 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 visualize. But I want to say that there's one common thing I've learned 
And that is that Australians thrive on their challenges and have always been able to arrive at great solutions, despite differences of ideas and opinions. But that is what makes Australia great. And I believe that if we keep that spirit, we keep giving those at the helm the opportunity to present their ideas. And we absorb those which we believe are um, appropriate. And we also criticize those which we think are not going to work. The process is there. And yes, that's why I believe that if we go to the community, the leaders of these um, greater New South Wales are going to hear what is in the appetite of the local community. And that is already a great filter. So I will say, Belinda, that if you are going to invite me in the future to discuss what these plans look like once we have them in front of us, it's going to be part of that great process of understanding, analyzing and criticizing. uh, And that gives always a message to our leaders of what is in the uh, appetite of the local community, because we need to listen. We need to listen. And I thank you very much for the opportunity to come and talk to you. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. And I hope that by doing so, we have embraced that great Australian spirit. And I'll be very glad to be back here once again <laughs> in the future. Thank you. That's fantastic, Carla. Thank you. If you have enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a review on your podcast app of choice to help the show. If you have a development project that needs an online presence or community engagement, head to the urbantalk.com.au website and contact us to get started. During the year, we'll continue to invite guests to speak on a variety of topics. If you have a topic that you would like to hear about, please send it through via the Urban Talk website or email me directly at belinda.urbantalk.com.au. For updates on Urban Talk, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. My name is Belinda Barnett and thank you for listening to the Urban Talk podcast.